1: This is The Red Line, where we interview three big geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas, and I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. $88 billion. That is the estimate of just how much the cocaine trade is worth each and every year. To put it in context, that is $21 billion more than the entire world's coal industry, That's $3 billion more than the entire GDP of Sri Lanka. It's safe to say it is an incredibly lucrative market, and almost all of it comes from one place, Colombia. In the northwest corner of South America, Colombia is home to the majority of the world's cocaine supply. But people have been trying to crack down on this for many years now. With everyone from the EU to the US putting troops and specialist task groups in, to try and solve the problem at its roots, but to no avail. Because Colombia is far more complicated than just drugs. Colombia is a geographic nightmare, with a vast number of players all vying for power. Just to name a few of the players, there is a 50-year war with left-wing guerrillas like FARC and ELN. On the other side, there are paramilitarios and right-wing militias paid by wealthy landowners to fight them as well as drug cartels fighting with both sides to keep hold of their incredibly valuable crops. And even on top of that, there's national soldiers from Bogota as well as the US trying to fight all of them. So it's pretty obvious that Colombia is far more complicated than just drugs and rebels. And to help us try to get our mind around that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1.
2: A Grand Strategy
3: So Colombia is a rather unique country in South America, and this is primarily due to its geography, which creates several different characteristics that only Colombia can really have. The first one is the the Andes Mountain segments the country into several different portions because it breaks off into three different branches across the entire east-west range of Colombia. This creates unique pockets of the population. So instead of having them all concentrated in one location, as you can see in places like Peru or Argentina, and even to an extent Brazil, if you take that section of the Rio Sao Paulo area, typically you'll see large, large, dense populations in one city. And while Bogota has a lot of people, the population in Colombia is much more spread out across the entire country than others in the region.
1: Alison Fedorca is the Director of Analysis for Geopolitical Futures a think tank headed up by George Friedman. Allison was also the former Latin American regional director for the Stratford Group and has authored many articles on Latin America and its relationship with the rest of the world. She joins us today.
3: The other unique feature about Colombia is that it is a bi-coastal nation. So unlike other countries in South America, it has a coast both on the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. It is very difficult for Colombia to access the Pacific coast. Uh, most of its population and economic development have been on the Atlantic side, primarily due to location of resources, the Magdalena River flowing out into the Atlantic Ocean, and the colonial history, which was oriented towards Europe. And this is still a unique feature because most countries can only access one or the other. You have a few small Central American countries that have bi-coastal access, But otherwise, you're talking big players like the United States, Canada, and Mexico that will have access to both the Atlantic and Pacific. The other thing that you need to keep in mind about Colombia is that it is in South America, but it is located on the southern rim of the Caribbean. And this gives it a hand into the northern hemisphere, which is not something many South American countries can Can enjoy or have this type of connection. Other than Venezuela, these are your two main South American countries on the Caribbean. This gives it value in terms of the geopolitical dynamics in the Northern Hemisphere, primarily with the United States and in terms of the access to the Caribbean Sea. And then I would also just end with the Caribbean and this idea of the sea access and lanes is to remember the Panama Canal, the biggest geopolitical setback for Colombia was the loss of Panama in 1903. And while the country has managed to recover in a large degree in terms of having good ties with the United States, good ties with Panama, uh, positioning its port of Cartagena to be a hub for maritime trade, this was still a, an immense loss in terms of geopolitical power and potential for, for the country. The other thing that stands out about Colombia is that it has a very good free open market compared to most countries in the region. And then, of course, you get into the characteristics that most of us are familiar with, which is domestic terrorism, uh, FARC, drug trafficking, organized crime, and and things like that. But there really is a lot more to Colombia uh, besides those key things that we hone in on in the northern or English press.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the history here to give us some context. Colombia used to be the center of a much larger country known as Gran Colombia, stretching from the northern tip of Panama to the southern tip of Ecuador. Can you take us a bit through what was Gran Colombia?
3: Gran Colombia was the first version of an independent Colombia. And basically, its administrative boundaries were taken off of the Viceroyalty of Nueva Granada, which is what the Spanish government had imposed on the region when they first took over. And these boundaries were basically... They were based off of administrative needs. So in terms of security and defense, uh, commerce, and that kind of dictated how the government in Spain structured its holdings in the new world. So when independence came uh, in the 1820s, they used a lot of the same administrative structures that were already in place instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. And this is what we got with Gran Colombia. So we had Ecuador, Colombia, and Panama, and Venezuela all in this one area that had been under Spanish rule now being an independent unit. This came to be for a couple of reasons. The first one is what I just mentioned, which is administratively, they were already kind of under the same umbrella. So a lot of the offices for governing local areas were already in place. And the second one is that they fought for independence under the same Simon Bolivar type front. So when the wars for independence took place in South America... There were a couple of key areas and key leaders, and the independence movement in the north, characterized by Colombia and Venezuela and Simon Bolivar's revolution, was in many ways separate and distinct from San Martin in in southern America, where you saw the movement in Argentina and Chile. So you had two different fronts kind of going on with independence and Gran Colombia is where it started in the north. And you've heard of the Bolivarian revolution in Venezuela. This is where it comes from. And that's how we had the first version of Colombia. And what happened in the 1820s is that over time, administrative difficulties, uh, at the time the geography was extremely challenging. It still is, but they didn't have the technology to overcome it with highways or airplanes, or things that we have now that make communication between large scopes of area a lot easier. So that made ruling very difficult. And then also you just had infighting. Uh, You had political leaders in, in Bogota who were fighting with political leaders in Caracas and diverging interests in terms of how the areas should be run and the future for these different regions. And ultimately, they kind of each decided to separate and go their own way. And this ended up with Colombia On its own, with Panama up until 1903, and then after Panama gained independence, we have what is considered present-day Colombia with its current national borders.
1: During the 1960s, Colombia, much like other nations in the region, went through a number of left-wing insurgencies and revolutions. Can you take us through the basics of these?
3: To understand the 1960s, I think we actually have to go back to a period called La Violencia in Colombia, which was from 1946 to 1958. And essentially, during this time period, Colombia was in a state of civil war. It started over political differences. So you had two major political parties, the liberals and the conservatives. They were at odds with each other before 1946. But this is really when it came to a peak. And this, this era is characterized by widespread violence, primarily in the countryside, where the political system had degenerated to the point of making governability extremely difficult, very divided. Who was in power always kind of came into question, and you had people fighting each other in the countryside, liberals fighting conservatives all throughout the country. It didn't quite get into the cities, but it devastated any non-urban area in the country. And so eventually you had the National Front come in, and they kind of agreed, the liberals and the conservatives together, okay, we either are going to fall into military rule or descend into complete chaos. We're going to find a way to work together to form a government. And this worked, but it still left the rural population extremely ostracized, extremely devastated by all the fighting that had taken place, dislocation of populations, destruction of agriculture lands. And this population was heavily displaced, heavily poor. The economic models that were put in place to kind of help the recovery didn't really address all of their needs. It didn't really do enough in terms of the way agriculture and things like that were organized to help them or support small farms, but still kind of kept wealth a little bit more concentrated into large landholders and wealthy populations. So with this, you kind of can see how this idea of communism that was kind of prevalent in the 1960s would take hold in Colombia. You had a communist party there. And when you have a large portion of your population, looking for better living conditions, better wealth distribution, better agriculture policies and land ownership, the ideas of the Communist Party are very appealing because it kind of serves as a grand equalizer for the population. And so we saw the countryside become ripe for this type of political movement. And then you had people that would come into contact with these ideas because Remember, this is the middle of the Cold War. The idea of communism is around the entire globe. It's getting into every single corner. No one has not heard of it. So by 1964, you saw some uprisings taking place in the Colombian countryside, and that's when FARC was born.
1: And we will talk a little bit more about these groups with our second guest. But Colombia is in a very different economic position to other nations in the region, like Ecuador, Peru, or Venezuela. Why is Colombia relatively better off than the other nations of the area?
3: If you look at South America, you can see a trade block called the Pacific Alliance. And Colombia is in that alliance. And it's a relatively new trade block, but it's characterized by free market, open trade regulations. And so basically what Colombia has done is what most Americans, uh, and I would wager to say Australians, think in terms of business practices where free trade you know, is, a, is a good thing, opening up your markets to supply and demand, allowing prices to go up if they need to based on supply and demand are all good things. And that's how a capitalist-oriented society and economy should work. If you look at places like Venezuela, you have gotten to a place, in Ecuador as well, where the economies became very dependent on a single commodity, which is oil, And on top of that, their economies were heavily controlled and regulated by the central government. Over time, in particular, in Venezuela, this distorted the economy immensely. So Colombia has managed to kind of weather this better because it has fundamentally different economic practices in place and an entirely different economic model in place. Whereas Venezuela has been very much state controlled for the past three, four decades and it has not gone well. And it makes it also extremely vulnerable to outside shocks, such as plunging oil prices. Ecuador is an interesting case right now, because while it used to follow the Venezuela model, primarily under Correa, they have now gotten a new president. And under, under Lenin Moreno, he has essentially started transitioning Ecuador away from this old model of state intervention and control into a more free market track. It's not quite there yet, because there's a lot of things that need to be fixed. uh, And that's going to take some time. But overall, the track that Colombia chose has positioned it to be a stronger, more stable, more resilient economy.
1: Another oddity of Colombia is its huge informal economy. Why is so much of Colombia's money tied up in black and gray markets?
3: So the huge informal economy is actually pretty typical for for Latin America in general. And it's not just Colombia that that has this issue. If you look across the region, anywhere from 30 to 40% of the workforce being informal is not uncommon. There's a few different reasons for this to uh, be the case, but you have to remember bureaucracy in Latin America is extremely high. And so being able to operate inside the formal parameters can sometimes be very costly and also be very difficult. You have a history of wealth disparity and education gaps, meaning your workforce may not be as developed as other workforces. And the type of development for your economy, such as building basic projects, will require very labor-intensive things, uh, in which case Being informal also allows the companies to have lower wages if you are hiring someone outside of the economy. And it's just been a very much a a tradition in the region, if you will. Uh, There's a lot of obstacles to formalizing the economy. And you've had to find workarounds, right? If you see a lot of red tape or a lot of issues, you find workarounds to solve the problem. The, The reason for the informal economy has, I think, a lot to do with the The difficulty of joining the formal economy, how expensive it is, and the need to get jobs done, the need to get projects done, the need to earn a paycheck will incentivize people to go and work outside those systems.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: The man who is currently at the helm of Colombian politics is Ivan Duque Marquez, who is trying to formalize parts of the Colombian economy. Can you give us a bit of a summary on Duque's policies?
3: The, the current president, Duque, in Colombia has—it's important to remember him coming in, whereas his predecessors, if you look at your Santos and your Uribe, they had quite a high degree of, of popularity. When you look at Colombian politics, you don't usually see the left party performing strongly in national elections, they're there. They have a preference. But if you look back on when Duque was elected, he was in a pretty tight race with his competitor Petro. Now, that's unusual for Colombia. If he had lost, if Duque had lost the race, it would have been a historical shift. And I, I take that as when we look at geopolitically at a country and their their politics, The candidates are expressions of social forces that are coming into play. And so seeing this election, looking back on it, we can say, okay, there's pressure building inside of Colombia. You are seeing a group of people that are disagreeing with the traditional role of the political leadership of the traditional political parties. And they are not as on board as say they used to be, which explains why he won by such a small margin compared to how parties performed uh, in previous administrations. Then when you look at the past few years while he has been in office, the domestic situation has really deteriorated to a large degree. The economy has been having problems with oil prices dropping, not to mention the COVID pandemic. The peace deal that was reached with the FARC in many ways has led to more domestic unrest and violence in the country because of fragmented uh, criminal groups emerging. Uh, You've had other external crises like the Venezuelan migration and COVID pandemic coming in. So he's in a much more weakened position now than, than a lot of his predecessors were in terms of having to fight multiple battles on multiple fronts with constrained resources.
1: Obviously, a lot of Colombia's wealth comes from its exports of natural resources. But what resources does Colombia have to export?
3: So, Colombia has a lot of hydrocarbon resources in terms of energy. It's got coal. It's got oil. It also has a lot of mining resources in terms of natural resources that it exports. There is some agriculture. Uh, if you want, you can even call cocaine. <laughs> In export, It does help feed the black market economy, but it's not going to show up on any of their books. And then you're also starting to see, uh, you know, there's a services sector that's growing with some uh, tech and innovation in places like Cali and some manufacturing that's also taking place in, in Colombia as well. It has not fully developed or industrialized to the level of, say, a European country. But it is definitely beyond just a natural resources exporter, uh, an economy that runs off of, of basic exports and minimal value-added goods.
1: Colombia has a few geographical problems baked into the cake. The northwest corner has the Darien Gap, a huge patch of swamps and jungle that is far too dense and difficult to build major infrastructure in. In fact, it's the one area preventing a Trans-America Highway running from Alaska to the southern tip of Chile. The west of the country contains an area of thick jungle as well, perfect areas for guerrilla groups and fighters to hide out in. And Colombia also has the Andes Mountains running down the middle of it, a huge mountain range that makes travelling from west to east somewhat difficult, because you have to cross the mountains. And the result of this is that only a small fraction of the population lives on the eastern side of the mountains, near the Brazilian border. So taking all of these into account, how centralized is the Colombian government? Does the authority of Bogota extend right across the country, or is it just limited to some of the major cities?
3: So when we started talking about Colombia, I mentioned this idea of geography kind of dictating a lot of the key characteristics of Colombia. And these geographic characteristics impact the governability of the country as well. The jungles, the mountains, these are still difficult to traverse and connect different parts of the country. It's doable now in terms of the technology that we have. It's not always cost effective. And so developing the infrastructure and connectivity nationwide in Colombia continues to be a, a bit of a struggle just because of the geographic nature. If you think about a place such as the the Midwest in the United States, it's fairly easy to get from point A to point B and build a road because it's all flat and you don't have that luxury in Colombia, and you have multiple population centers scattered throughout the country. And so you still have to kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, prioritize and work your way out to getting to all of the locations. The ability for a government to control its territory really needs to have reach across the entire nation. And since some locations are easier to reach than others, that means that we'll see pockets where there are power voids. And where there are power voids, generally speaking, someone will step in to take advantage of that space and use that space to their advantage. In Colombia, what we have traditionally seen in, in recent decades is you will see organized crime stepping in to fill that gap. What they can do is do things like offer an economic activity for the local population. Even if it's an illicit activity, such as participating in the drug trade, they can offer these people a source of income that perhaps is not as easy to come by through the national government, either through the programs that are being offered to them, such as, you know, alternative crop growing. They're not going to make nearly as much money than if they collaborate with local organized crimes in efforts to produce higher revenue yielding crops like coca. And you're going to see this permeate into the local politics as well. So it's not just about governing the main economic activity in these pockets, but they will also be taking decisions at a very local level politically in terms of, law enforcement or local townspeople who, who make the rules and govern the bureaucracy. They may not necessarily occupy these posts themselves, but they will have an influence and a means of influencing these people such that they can get what they want out of the, the local affairs.
1: Due to Colombia's geography, it is already very difficult to completely govern the country. But what makes it even more difficult is trying to govern whilst fighting a guerrilla war. A guerrilla war that has been waging since the 1960s. In 2016, we saw a peace deal to finally bring some stability to Colombia and end the war for good. But then, like so many other votes in 2016, things went wrong, and once again the situation in the countryside went up in the air. With a number of these fighters disheartened by the peace process and returning to the jungles to take up guns against the government. So let's go through all of this, explain who these groups are, what they fight for, and what went terribly wrong in 2016. To talk more about that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. A Cold War
4: Hangover
2: um, Colombia has always been a very uh, territorially, geographically challenged country in terms of mobility and just basic state control of the the territory itself and you'll hear why that's been an issue for this conflict
1: ted Bacon is a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at the brookings institution specializing in latin america he is also the chief engagement officer at the world justice project an organization advancing the rule of law in crisis areas he joins us today Right. It's always
2: been an issue of the basics of like transportation of how you get from one point to the other. Um, And that has allowed groups to mass in certain areas that are hard for the government to reach and control. So whether that's armed groups that are driven by ideological concerns or criminal groups that are driven by the high profits associated with growing coca and sending that on to other markets um it's it's been a story of a weak central state that has been unable to assert physical control of its territory
1: colombia has been struggling with the guerrilla insurgency since the very early days of the cold war with a number of its key players all finding each other so i want to get to know a few of these key players and let's start with the big one first who is FARC?
2: The, the FARC um, is the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and they have a political and a military wing, or I should say had a political and military wing. Um, it's, it's basically a group that grew out of a series of smaller peasant groups that were scattered around the country um, and began to organize in the 1940s and 50s. In response to what had been decades and decades of really um, elite control of their lands uh, and oppressive labor practices, where peasants who did most of the labor had um, very little control or very meager resources in terms of what they were paid by vast, uh, by landowners of vast territory. And so grievances uh, grew and grew to the point where uh, they began to arm themselves, um, but they actually didn't form a unified group, an umbrella group, until 1964. Um, And this is when they declared themselves as a fighting force inspired by Marxist-Leninism and began to articulate a plan to uh change the system in in colombia uh, now this happened after many years of conflict between the two main um political factions of the country um and there was a period in the 1950s called la violencia the violence capital l capital v in which uh, the two main political parties Um, on the left and the right, were in virtual open warfare. And there was a tremendous amount of political violence in the country. Those two main factions reached an agreement in 1958 and agreed to share power, basically, and alternate power with each party getting one term in office and then it would change over. There was a process of elections, uh, so it wasn't like... There, This wasn't completely top-down, but um, that pact uh, worked for many years, but it excluded the, the, these peasant groups that I referred to earlier. So they felt locked out of that deal and decided to um, take up arms to, to battle these two elite forces in the country.
1: And we'll talk a bit more about FARC later on. But the other major left-wing insurgency is the ELN, can you take us through who the ELN are and how they differ from FARC?
2: Right. This is the Army of National Liberation, ELN uh, in, in Spanish and acronyms. Um, so this group was similar to the FARC, had similar goals, um, and uh, operated in different parts of the country. They obviously were rivals. Sometimes they would um, complement each other's activities but they both engaged in a variety of uh, practices like kidnapping extortion uh, bombings um, both in the countryside and when they were feeling stronger uh, in cities including in in the capital city of bogota
1: and were they fighting alongside farc or fighting against farc you know seeing as they're both competing for the same areas and people in most cases
2: more competing for the same market. um, And they had different um, alliances around the country and outside of the country. So for example, uh, the ELN was traditionally more closely aligned with Fidel Castro in Cuba, and uh, which harbored many of them over many years. Uh, But the FARC also had its ties to Cuba. Um, So there were periods of of overlap, but for the most part, they were rivals um, competing for similar market share. Um, And whether that was in the earlier days of, you know, political um, ideological um, struggle, uh, but over time, uh, as that really did not inspire a revolution, did not win over the thousands or millions of people they were hoping to get on their side um, and their tactics were increasingly rejected by the Colombian people, um, there was a turn toward more outright criminal activity just to stay in business, um, especially drug trafficking. Um, so they were more rivals at that point. Now, the country is big enough that they there was room to spare in terms of the, the territory they could... Uh, each occupied but uh they never unified
1: as as two groups fighting against both of these groups were the right-wing paramilitarios who are quite often funded by wealthy landowners were these guys working on behalf of the Bogota government or just guns for hire really
2: yeah this is a really important part of the story so the, the farc and the eln were doing enough harm that the landowners and elites uh, decided to organize themselves and and fight back. And around the 1980s, a group of wealthy ranchers and farmers formed um, an umbrella group um, that were united to fight and defeat uh, the FARC and the ELN. And they were particularly active in the 1990s. And yes, there was uh, some tacit and maybe sometimes not so tacit support from the Colombian military. Um but they too uh were criticized for their harsh tactics and, and there were some brutal uh episodes of, of massacres and, and other killings that that they also had to turn to uh, drug trafficking uh to stay in operation. Um to the point where they were even designated, as was the FARC and the ELN, uh, a foreign terrorist organization by the United States and others. Um, So you had these, you know, hardcore landowning rancher groups on the right, and these Marxist-inspired leftist guerrillas on the left, and going all out, um, and mostly affecting the countryside. I mean, most of the violence took place in these Uh, isolated pockets, and for many, many, most, I would say, Colombians, they had no experience with the conflict. Uh, It didn't come, usually, into the cities. Um, But it was affecting the Colombian economy, and it was affecting the ability of people to move around from one part of the country to the other because of fear of kidnapping, in particular. Uh, And there were some very celebrated cases in which... um, Important Colombian politicians and uh, elites were kidnapped and held in the jungle for uh, many years, uh, including Americans, by the way. Um, And eventually, some of them were were rescued uh, through negotiations or through uh, military operations. Um, So that's what the conflict looked like through the 1990s. Um, the, the, the paramilitaries eventually disbanded collectively um, in around the mid first decade. So between 2003 and 2006, um, the government of Colombia reached agreement uh, that they should let down their arms and let the state fight uh, the guerrillas. And this was, I think, an imp- important turning point, uh, but one that still is criticized for allowing some of those groups to um, operate with impunity. There was no real accountability for some of the violations they, they caused during their time uh, in operation. But things really got bad uh, in the late 1990s uh, when President Andres Pastrana uh, initiated a peace process with the FARC um, and allowed them to group themselves into a camp um, and for the purposes of creating some confidence, but also as a way to uh, come to a collective understanding on their part on the less part, the FARC's part, um, to negotiate a peace agreement with with the government um, but that demilitarized zone uh, really failed, and the FARC in fact used it to regroup, and at one point their forces were estimated to be between sixteen and twenty thousand fighters. Um, so this really, when this collapsed, the next government that came into office, President Uribe from the Conservative Party, he decided, no, we need a military solution here. We we need to really organize an all-out assault on the FARC and defeat them forever. Around this time, the late 90s into the early 2000s, uh, the United States got quite involved. And the... Um, The Colombian government came to the White House, I was working at the National Security Council at the time, and said, look, um, here's our plan. Here's our plan for taking back our country. Will you support it? Um, And the United States did uh, invest uh, something like over $12 billion over a period of almost two decades um, to uh, help the Colombians strengthen their military, gain better control of their territory. But there were also a number of other elements around development and agricultural reform, um, political reform uh, over those many years.
1: And where did the drug cartels fit in with all this? Would they be fighting the FARC or would they be fighting the paramilitarios? What side do they sit on all this?
2: <laughs> no, there was lots of infighting, um, but there were also periods of of cooperation. So, The FARC would, for example, um, cooperate with the coca growers um, and protect their territory from the Colombian military, um, but for a price. And so they got a cut on the transportation of the coca leaf to the processing labs and then out across the Pacific or up the Caribbean, sometimes through the Darien Gap in Panama on the northern border. Um, to get these drugs out of Colombia. Uh, so there was uh, that kind of convenience of uh, uh, alliance between drug trafficking groups, uh, coca growers and the FARC uh, that really allowed the FARC to amass hundreds of millions of dollars um, to support their fighting force.
1: What are the forms of financial support did FARC actually have, you know, Did they take support from Cuba or the Soviet Union? You know, who else was supporting FARC?
2: The FARC was really primarily an indigenous force that, again, because of some of these uh, criminal activities, was able to sustain itself um, for the most part. They did get uh, some ideological, um, rhetorical, and material support uh, over the years from, uh, allied countries, but nothing that really was so significant that it turned, it never turned into like a pitched battlefield in the cold war. Like for example, in central America, central America was ground zero for the cold war in this hemisphere, um, in El Salvador and Nicaragua in particular. Um, where there was a much more explicit standoff between the Soviet Union and Cuba on the one hand and the United States. Um, And it was, you know, a decade-long, brutal, bloody series of civil wars, um, which, frankly, these countries have never quite recovered from, although they're certainly better off than
1: than before. I want to get a better idea of the front lines here. So how firm were the front lines between the FARC and the Colombian government? Was it a definitive front line, like saying we'd see in Ukraine, or was it more like an insurgency in the way we would see a conflict like Chechnya or the Tamil Tigers? More the former, that there were
2: certain uh, provinces of Colombia that had much greater FARC presence. Um, there was also some support over the border. Uh, so this is relating to this last question um, in Ecuador, for example. Um, or in Venezuela along the border where the FARC and the ELN would take refuge um, and kind of re, regroup. Um, and, before, um, and, and also that was important, supply channels for arms um, back into Colombia. Um, at one point there was even collaboration with the IRA where they captured some IRA uh, terrorists who were training the the Colombian FARC on their tactics around bombings and uh, kidnappings, et cetera. Um, So this this was um, a fairly decentralized battle. Uh, At various times, it wasn't clear who was leading the FARC uh, and
1: it was a bit uh, hard to really penetrate The fighting with FARC had been going on for 50 years at this point before both sides agreed to come to the table and start negotiations. What was the straw that broke the camel's back here and finally convinced both sides to try and solve this diplomatically rather than trying to solve it through violence?
2: Well, you have to realize that the peace talks went on for four years. Um, So the referendum happened in November of 2016, but starting in 2012, Um, Again, after a campaign of political and military pressure on the FARC, um, there was this extended negotiating process with four countries serving as guarantors, really particularly led by Norway and Cuba. And the peace talks took place in Cuba. So you would have government negotiators meeting face-to-face with the FARC leadership and undertaking a really intensive and comprehensive approach to Uh, a peace accord uh, that is, uh, in my view, one of the more uh, fascinating uh, peace accords because it really tries to get at the root elements of this conflict. Um, And what I'm referring to specifically is rural development and agricultural reform. I mean, this was the longstanding uh, uh, agenda that the FARC was most preoccupied by that their lands and their work was not being rewarded um, and instead was controlled and really sometimes a a feudal kind of system. Um, So they insisted on uh, a number of elements in this peace accord that led to, or (laughs) is slowly leading toward a redevelopment and reinvestment of uh, government Uh, money and also private sector investments in the rural areas where they came from. Um, The other chapters of the peace process covered things like drug trafficking and getting the FARC to abandon any um, uh, involvement in in drug trafficking, uh, but also uh, coming up with schemes of alternative development um, to get coca farmers away from coca and toward licit crops. Um, There was a very important chapter about allowing the FARC to enter politics as a legitimate political party and the guarantees of protection that they needed, uh, given previous histories where a different uh, armed group called the Union Patriotica um, had converted to a political party only to face a series of murders and assassinations against their members. Um, And this really was a major shadow over the peace process, and the FARC wanted guarantees that their members, when they laid down their arms, would not be subject to that kind of uh, violence by uh, either the paramilitaries or or the government. And then, of course, uh, there was a very important chapter on justice and transitional justice, and more uh, extensive uh, uh, ways of uh, moving past the the. the the history here and trying to reach a mix of some kind of punishment for crimes that were committed on both sides, by the way, but also restorative justice where FARC members in exchange for reentering society uh, would contribute in some ways to community development in exchange for uh, uh, not having to go to jail. and then finally, there was an important chapter on uh, demobilization and reintegration of the fighters. So this was the peace process and, and the accords as they landed and the government uh, presented it to the Colombian voters in a referendum in November, 2016, everyone thought it would pass. Uh, you know, there had been many, many popular protests against the FARC. Uh, the FARC was not a popular force, Um and but, so that resentment toward the FARC um, gathered enough steam that, in fact, the referendum failed by very close margin. There are various reasons for that. One was uh, that the, the, those that supported the peace accords um, were not mobilized to vote. Um, some of them were living in very remote areas. Um, and they, uh, there was some bad weather around the time of elections. Uh, and they just didn't turn out, even though they may have supported it in, in principle. Whereas the those who were always um, against the FARC really did turn out their their vote. Um, but there was so much international momentum around the peace accords that Santos, the president of the time, uh, decided to renegotiate some elements that were of concern on the right and and then take it to the Congress instead of going back to the Colombian voters. Um, and the Congress ratified the agreement shortly after uh, the referendum lost and uh, started implementation.
1: Was there much difference between what the people voted down and what was eventually pushed through the parliament?
2: Frankly, nothing major that got changed. There were some, I wouldn't call it, it wasn't quite window dressing, but there were some... Um, Um, adjustments that were made, Uh, but the core elements of the accord remain. That in exchange for turning in their weapons and demobilizing, this largest rebel force in the country would reintegrate into society and would be recognized as citizens uh, with certain benefits um, to return to, to society and productive
1: life. During this war, the FARC fighters were betrayed in the Colombian media as bloodthirsty terrorists. So how does the government plan to do a 180 in trying to reintegrate these people into society with jobs and houses and shake off this stigma they've given to FARC?
2: Yeah, it's been going... Well, the initial phase went quite well, I would say. This was the demobilization, reintegration phase, where first all the FARC fighters were brought together in different camps, they had to turn in their weapons. All of this was verified by the United Nations by July of 2017, just you know, nine months after the accords were were signed. Uh, the UN Security Council had uh, a verification mission on the ground, um, and and so this part of the process went surprisingly well, and I think it, it gave the average Colombian. A, a sense of confidence that uh, they could see peace around the corner. And by this time, you know, kidnappings had dropped dramatically, murders, extortion. People were able to travel um, with with more confidence around the country. So th- there was a sense of momentum building toward sustainable peace. Um, the, the nonetheless, um, the government there were elections in 2018 and this was a really important changeover where santos could not run for office again and the um the right that was also always more skeptical about the peace accords uh won that election it was a peaceful election and the farc was allowed to run as a political party they didn't do very well <laughs> they, they really didn't do well at all but they were guaranteed certain seats as a result of the Peace Accord. Uh, So the FARC itself um, was coming under some pressure from groups that were still resentful of the role they played. Uh, And there were assassinations of FARC uh, political leaders, other social leaders, say from uh, religious and campesino groups, union leaders, teachers, environmentalists, um, who were seen as sympathetic to to the FARC. Um, so this really radicalized some of the demobilized FARC fighters, and they said, we're, we're not going to demobilize. We're going to go back into the jungle, and we're going to go continue fighting. So the estimates are roughly between 8 or 13% have returned to illicit activities. Now, the FARC political leadership denounces them, um, but there have been some important figures who have gone back to the jungle and picked up arms again. Now, we're not seeing uh, a resurgence in in FARC attacks. I think it's more about some of the localized criminal activity. Um, I should also mention in this context, don't forget, the ELN did not come to the peace table. There have been various attempts to get them to uh, do what the FARC did, and they have failed. And one of the most spectacular um examples of that failure was uh, the ELN claimed responsibility for bombing a police academy in Bogota in January of 2019. And so and there were talks underway. So obviously the talks were aborted and um, right now the Colombian government is demanding the return of ELN leaders who are harboring in Cuba. Uh, and that has, of course, has not happened yet. Um, so what you've seen since the peace process ended and cords being implemented is is a fragmentation of the security environment where you have these returning FARC fighters, you have on the paramilitary side, um, criminal groups that are returning to um, various criminal activities, including in, in the drug trade, but also Gold mining, um, illegal gold mining, particularly along the border with Venezuela. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, quite, it's a good illustration of just how complex the country is territorially, that it's so hard to get control of the various criminal groups around the country um, who are
1: still doing what they do. With so many fight fighters finding it much harder to reintegrate back into society than they ever thought possible. Do you think we'll see a resurgence of these groups over the next few years as many of them give up and head back to the life they know in the jungle?
2: It's <laughs> not finished, um, you know, this is now uh, regularly on the UN Security Council agenda because the Colombian government needs all the help it can get. And, uh, you know, external parties, including the United States, have continued to support the Colombian process uh, and implementation of the accords, but um, it's not, never going to be enough. It's really up to the Colombians to decide to, to invest the kind of money and people. You know, I think that is a, a concern, just getting civilian officials who are willing to go move into these remote areas and set up a court, set up a um, public school. Uh, you know, there's not much willingness to, to do that uh, among elites in the cities because the cities are still doing pretty well. I mean, Colombia over, overall is a functioning uh, society and economy. And P- the economy has generally been a good performer, growing 2 to 3% a year, even in some difficult times. They have a free trade agreement with the United States that was – uh, ratified in 2012. Um, so let's keep that in mind as really the primary driver of Colombian development is the licit economy. The legal economy is quite strong. Uh, so you know I think it's one of these places that will always have a chronic uh, conditions of insecurity. And the question is how do you contain it? Uh, how do you minimize it? Uh, and how do you deal with this other core part of the problem, which is drug demand in the United States and elsewhere?
4: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Many of these fighters went back to the only life they knew. A life where they had money, where they had a job, where they had security. And they weren't treated like terrorists. And that life was coca farming, the precursor to cocaine. A drug that has become widespread throughout the entire world, but mostly originates right here in Colombia. It's such an open secret now that most of the world's cocaine comes from Colombia. Countries like the US pay millions of dollars in a failing war to attempt to halt the production right here. But how effective has that been? Why haven't the Colombians done more to claim this out, and will the US use its anti-drug soldiers on the ground there for other operations just over the border in its regional enemy Venezuela? Well, for answers to those questions, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. The Root of the Problem
5: well, Colombia has always been a, a bit of an outlier in the region, not just because of its long-standing guerrilla war, but also its politics that, that in part were shaped by that guerrilla war. It tends to be much more conservative in terms of voters' views um, in a median sense than many Latin American countries. Um, and it also has a very close relationship with the United States because of the anti-narcotics relationship. But then the way that's been manipulated, first uh, under uh, President Uribe, uh, when uh, the U.S. was attacked on nine eleven, and the ways in which it, it sort of he folded his anti FARC uh, narcotic strategy into an anti-terrorism strategy, um, and the way that carried over uh, across administrations, both in Colombia and in the United States. But what makes Colombia somewhat similar now to other countries in the region, uh, despite its current very conservative government, is the fact that it is becoming very polarized in its domestic politics.
1: Chris Sabatini is a senior fellow at London based think tank, Chatham House, focusing on Latin America. He's also the former editor of Global Americans, a former lecturer at Columbia University, and a founder of Americans Quarterly, a politics, business and culture publication focusing on Latin America. We are very pleased to have Chris back on the program today. Part of the reason
5: too, is that it doesn't have any uh, rail links uh, connecting the Caribbean and the Pacific. It's been a long standing desire of the Colombians to have that link, sort of a transcontinental, if you will, transoceanic link, um, and uh, it, it's you know flirted with this idea. In fact, actually, Juan Manuel Santos to to uh, needle the United States a little bit over the free trade agreement, courted or uh, flirted even with the, the Chinese to build ports on the Pacific coast and to build out that rail link so that it could start to ship in that way. Um, and so it's always been a desire, but it's never really been fulfilled. And, you know, we've even seen in the last 10 years or so Colombia joining the Pacific Alliance, which is Chile, Peru, Colombia and, and Mexico, um, which is, you know, these are it's, it's an economic association of, of countries that, that whose within whose borders, 94 percent of the trade is free uh, without tariff, any sort of barriers. Um, but it's. Uh, that, you know, that's really, really only a small claim. When you think the Pacific oriented economies, you obviously think mostly in this order, Chile, Peru, which for whom China is the number one, uh, trade partner, uh, to a certain extent, in Mexico and Colombia sort of last, um, but through that Alliance, you have had serious, uh, integration in terms of economics, and even in terms of their stock markets, the Mila, which is the combined stock markets of those four countries is,
1: is alive and functioning as a result of this Pacific Alliance during the days of gran colombia ecuador used to take its orders from Bogota. does colombia have any sort of influence over ecuador today Uh, that's really in the past um
5: the uh the connections uh, among the former gran colombia uh, countries are are attenuated um, politically um in part because of the divergent political paths they've taken um, the uh historically not 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 even just recently And in part, what we've seen is in some cases, those relationships flare up a bit, um, whether it's between Bolivia and and Colombia over drug policy or over uh, ideologically uh, uh, polar opposites in terms of presidents. And in the case of of Ecuador, the previous president, Rafael Correa, uh, was accused of housing FARC guerrilla encampments uh, in, in in Ecuadorian territory in the Ecuador. Uh, Colombia border. And in fact, Colombia bombed those encampments uh, and recovered, the, the army actually recovered some uh, laptops, which were useful for Colombian intelligence. So it was a, an incursion into their territory um, that really stoked a, a real uh, moment of tension that uh, ended up resulting in a summit of South American leaders to try to uh, resolve uh, that, that tension. So you know, Ecuador doesn't take kindly to uh, uh, Colombia's saber-rattling and it's at times uh, incursions into its territory Uh, and also as Ecuador Ecuador likes to pride itself uh, that it's never really had a civil war despite sharing such a long border it's never had a a, a, a very active guerrilla movement or civil war inside unlike Colombia.
1: Another country that used to be a part of Gran Colombia, a country that these days is absolutely buried in crisis. The situation in Venezuela is boiled over and 1.7 million Venezuelan refugees have now fled over the border into neighboring Colombia. We won't go too far into it here because we have an entire piece delving into the crisis in Venezuela from earlier on in the year. If you want to get a better understanding, you can go check that out, and I highly recommend you do. But now that this refugee crisis has spilled over into Colombia, what impact will that have on Colombia going forward? So, first of all, the reasons. Uh, You've
5: had really uh, the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, almost in history, that has not been generated or caused by uh, an open conflict. It is a, an unprecedented collapse of the economy. Almost two-thirds of the economy has just evaporated. Um, poverty has reached up to 80%. Um, you have massive blackouts, hospitals, uh, the vast, vast majority of hospitals don't have running water, access to regular electricity and medicine, um, and of course, unemployment is, is skyrocketing. The um, and it's really not even measured anymore, so it's difficult to know what it really is. Uh, and as a result, Venezuelans are leaving in droves. There are more, uh, more than five million Venezuelans have left, um, and they've they've dispersed throughout the continent uh, and also into the Caribbean, where actually, in terms of uh, uh, proportional to the, rep- the local populations, there are far more Venezuelans in places like Curaçao and and other uh, Barbados then say Colombia, but but Colombia has received the vast bulk of of, um, Venezuelans, uh, upwards of of four million. That um, you know is is right now. Most are clustered along the border, although they've been dispersed and they've gone to other areas of the of the area, the country, to Cartagena, to Bogota, to Medellin, and while. By and large, with the exception of a few incidences, the Colombians have been somewhat welcoming of them. There have been growing tensions, and there are real concerns not just about the, um, uh, the, the risks of, of uh, strains on social services, which are legitimate because Colombia has always struggled, especially in rural areas and especially in the area along the Colombia Venezuelan border, to provide basic uh, uh, social safety nets such as uh, health care and education. But there are also uh, the the classic issues of whether uh, Venezuelan refugees, and they're refugees more than migrants. I think it's important to underscore this, whether they uh, are are really crowding out low income, low uh, uh, skilled workers out of the uh, job market and underpricing them. And you hear these stories about Colombian barbers um, or Colombian uh, uh, domestic workers who have been priced out by lower wage desperate Venezuelans who've come across the border.
1: With no end inside the crisis in Venezuela, is this now a long-term problem for Bogota? This is a long-term problem. Uh, some may go back uh, when the
5: situation is, is resolved. Um, but it, it's difficult and it, it's difficult to imagine uh, that many will, uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, many of the Venezuelans who fled are now uh, raising families in, in the countries they're adopted adoptive countries. Um, many of them um, have uh, brought their families with them so they're settling in. Um, and it's you know, since a large number fled because of economic reasons, it's difficult to imagine that an economy that has shrunk by almost two thirds um, and with no end in sight uh, in terms of a political transition that can get the country's economic footing back in place. It's difficult to imagine that it can grow at a rate uh that will provide jobs and sustainable incomes and housing and infrastructure and social safety nets in the ways that would attract people back across the borders um and and i should there's another point here that's important is many of the refugees that have gone to Colombia, unlike the ones that have gone to say chile argentina uh for example um many of the ones that are, are more uh, lower skilled workers whereas the one many of the venezuelan refugees who are now in argentina or chile are doctors engineers a lot of them that found their way to Canada. Many of them much earlier were oil engineers, earlier waves of of migrants uh, that went to Colombia were also oil engineers and helped build up. Ironically, Colombia's oil and energy industry um, as precisely as Venezuela's was declining. um, They also won't go back. You've got good, steady jobs in an industry that is growing and in an industry in Venezuela that will take years. Uh, if not a decade, to repair and return it to the state it was uh, basically 10 years ago.
1: I know this is a bit of a radical question, but if Venezuela isn't able to solve its own problems, and all the regional players like Colombia and Brazil are suffering from the side effects of that, would there be any appetite to form a sort of regional army to go into Venezuela and solve this problem for themselves? The short answer is they don't want to get involved
5: in that mess at all. They may, and they, some of them may talk a mean game about this. Uh, part of that in the case of, of uh, Donald Trump uh, and some uh, those around him in the, in, in the uh, U.S. White House um, want to sort of ratter, rattle their saber a little bit, um, try to put that on the table. Hopefully uh, um, try to scare uh, elements within the Maduro government to, to defect. The problem is, uh, first of all, that it is—it is, um, sort of shortened the time horizon for the opposition to engage in meaningful mobilization and organization that could help force a transition. But second of all, um, as the, the Trump government engages what is basically very amateur psyops operations, um, it is it, it, as it does that and doesn't follow through. The threat has become much much weaker. So it's not going to do it. And and the reason is is obvious. I mean, first of all, when Trump was running for office, um, or was in office and and faced uh, the elections on November 3rd, he'd already made a large part of his claims to his America First strategy was that he was going to remove the boots from the ground, U.S. boots from the ground, places like Iraq and, and Afghanistan, including in NATO. He wasn't about to put more in Venezuela, but also you know, Venezuela is not just a mop-up operation. There are still, uh, well, first of all, there's a number of, of, of private militias or government-controlled um, uh, militias that would remain, that would have to be disarmed. You've got one of the highest murder rates in the world. It is a vast country. Um, and it's not one in which the government, despite all of its failures, and they are multiple, uh, is all that unpopular, at least in terms of its legacy of Hugo Chavez. Nicolás Maduro is very unpopular, but the, 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 the actual uh, ideology of Chavismo remains very popular. So the U.S., you know, even if it was thinking seriously about it, and there's no reason to think it was, it was just uh, engaging in some perhaps wishful thinking and, and as I say, amateur psyops, um, it, it would have been a task that it couldn't have, have effectively managed. Occasionally, you'll hear the Colombian government talk about uh, ramping up its pressure, military on the government, and it's the current government. Because the previous government uh, under Juan Manuel Santos, when it was negotiating the peace uh, with the FARC rebels, needed to get the Venezuelan government to, to sort of stay on the sidelines. And so it really held its tongue uh, on criticizing the Maduro government and engaging in anything that could be seen as prov- provoking that government, because it, it, its primary objective was negotiating the peace with the FARC. We can criticize that um, because it probably missed an opportunity to play a more constructive role during that time. But the truth is, uh, it didn't take a role. And now the, the, the Ivan Duque government is, is you know, may, occasionally ramps up its rhetoric, but it, there's really it's not about to lead a charge into Venezuela anytime soon. And it's simply not in the nature of South American countries to really invade. I and mean, this is a region that hasn't had a border conflict since 1995, when there was a brief border skirmish between Ecuador and
1: Peru, again, two Gran Colombia countries. A claim made by various members of the Trump administration was that the U.S. had 18 to 30,000 Colombian and U.S. special forces stationed on the Venezuelan border, who could at any time have pushed in and taken the capital of Caracas if ordered. Do you think there's any truth to that at all?
5: Again, it was just empty and dangerous saber rattling in the part of the Trump government. And it was an attempt to try to scare uh, a number of elements within the Venezuelan military and the inner circle, Maduro's inner circle, to defect uh, and, and try to seek some sort of uh, um, solution, exit, uh, that would remove Maduro and, and create at least an interim government. And that, you know, as those threats were floated more and more, they become, became more and more um, impotent. No one really believed it. Um, and and the and the truth is too is is the the, the troops that were on the border uh, and as I say in those various capacities simply weren't equipped to invade. I mean it, it's a jungle area. It isn't you know it's not you know, these are not you know easily invaded borders. Um, it uh, and again the idea that you could simply rattle the inner circle so that they would defect and you could sweep in like victors and and you know. Uh, in, 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 say, Paris and liberate the country simply wasn't true. And, and, and the military knew that very well,
1: the U.S. military. One of the major strategies that has been tried by the U.S. is to pay the farmers a subsidy to farm crops like coffee and get them to stop farming coca. But do you think they will actually work? Or will they have the same problem that the U.S. faced in Afghanistan where they pay the poppy farmers to stop farming poppies, but they make so much more farming poppies than anything else that they're never going to fully give it up?
5: When I was uh, actually fresh out of graduate school in the 1990s, I accompanied a, a, um, on a project I was working on, accompanied a group of, of uh, development officers who went to uh, the Upper Huayaga Valley in Peru, uh, which was the home of a large uh, unit of, of where a lot of the coca leaf was produced. And the, I was just tagging along, and they were inaugurating all these different... Uh, uh, farms that US dollars had, had, had uh, invested in to create palm oil, to create uh, cacao, um, all these different rubber, all these different uh, legal crops. And it took, we had to fly there and we spent at least five hours. And, what, and actually had to cross the Amazon, the headwaters of the Amazon and canoe, and five hours in four wheel drive trucks over muddy roads to get to these farms. And I asked one of the farmers, how the hell do you get these products to market? And he shrugged and he said, I don't know. He says, but when we were, I was growing coca, the gorillas would just come in with planes and land them right here on a strip and take them out for us. The truth is, is that even if, there, even if these products are sellable um, at, a, at a margin, profit margin that, that could replace coca, the truth is there's a fundamental lack of state capacity and in infrastructure in these deeply rural areas to be able to, get them to market in a profitable way. And so, yes, there is the, 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 I've heard, I wouldn't know this personally, but the price point of Coca is far higher than say the price point of of Hearts of Palm. Uh, That's one thing. But then even if you are growing Hearts of Palm and want to do the best thing, you just simply can't move the product as you don't have, uh, uh, you know, people with prop planes coming in and picking up your uh, Hearts of Palm product to sell it on the, uh, on the global market. And so, yeah, it's a, it, this is rooted in a fundamental problem that is both market-based, but also in terms of infrastructure and state development-based, that you know, these are um, you know, economies that have always existed on the margins of the uh, national and global economy. And as a result, they found their avenue through illicit, product, illicit products. So answer your question, are we throwing good money after bad? Yes, I would argue we are. The answer um, is is multifaceted uh, and involves um, helping to link these economies more formally and create economies of scale to global markets and national markets in a way that makes those products meaningful, even if they aren't as don't fetch as much of a profit as say, coca or marijuana.
4: <laughs>
1: The people who use cocaine are mostly in the US, Mexico, Canada, and Europe, so the drug problem doesn't blow back on Colombia nearly as badly. The cartels also make lots and lots and lots of money. Much of that, in some way, shape, or form, is actually pushed back into the Colombian economy through the black, grey, and white markets. Even disregarding the bribe money politicians and officials are paid by cartels, the drug money is probably a net benefit to the Colombian economy overall. So, is it actually in the best interest of Bogota overall? To go after these drug cartels, or simply just do enough to receive the U.S. funding in the drug war, whilst not majorly damaging that stream of income.
5: Um, the truth is, you know, there have been studies done, on to what extent uh, this money sort of finds its way, is washed it, its way through to more illicit enterprises in Colombia. I, I don't know the exact numbers, um, but yes, I, you know, you assume when you see some of these building skyscrapers in Bogota, Medellin, uh, when you see some companies that manage to continue to exist but without any real product or at, at, uh, with uh, practices that don't seem competitive, that there is some sort of hidden subsidy in all of those. Um, and it's difficult to measure what that is. I, as I say, there are people who look at this, but it's safe to say that this, uh, um, the amount of money that goes into colombia even though it may find its way through dirty channels resurfaces its way uh, to prop up the financial system and the real estate market and, and other things in ways that we really you know we bystanders i think michael if you and i were to walk down the streets of bogota compared to someone who works on these issues they would have a completely different view of that building its sources its operation than you and i would just uh, as pedestrians on a sidewalk it would look Bogota is a very modern city. It looks very uh, normal in that sense. But I I do think that someone who knows the ins and outs of how the money is resurfaces and laundered and like have a completely different view of these cities and their economies than we do.
1: So China has been investing a lot of money into Colombia and Latin America at the moment. Uh, What do you think Beijing's overall strategy for Latin America is? Truth is, China, of the
5: Latin American countries, um, China is less interested in, in Colombia. Um, if you look at its uh, investment uh, and its trade relations, its investments have been primarily focused in Venezuela and Ecuador and Bolivia, primarily in natural resources, um, also in, in Argentina, um, and, and to a certain extent for infrastructure in Brazil. Um, its trade relations are, are much closer with Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Peru. Um, so. Colombia is really sort of down on the priority list. It may have a, a, a long-term plan to build diplomatic alliances uh, and friendships that it can call upon uh, in the future. Uh, it may even have, in, in some cases like Bolivia and Venezuela, a desire to prop up uh, governments that are, uh, if you will, at, at best a thorn in the side of the United States. Um, but with Colombia, Colombia, again, has is, is, is always been a, a more conservative, at least in terms of its media and ideological profile of the voters uh, uh, c- country than most of the others. It's, um, you know, it, as I mentioned earlier, Juan Manuel Santos did flirt with China to build uh, a, a link between the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. Uh, and China is pretty good with investing money in an area that the U.S. hasn't. Historically, and that is an infrastructure, and that is deeply needed in Colombia, not just on that link between the Atlantic and the Pacific, but also in those areas that were once controlled by the FARC to stitch together, if you will, a national economy. Uh, Colombia's always had large issues of problems of state consolidation uh, for various reasons that were obviously taken advantage of by, by the guerrilla movements and the, the narcotics uh, trafficking. Um, so I, I don't see China as that much of a threat. There, there are some trade relations in terms of military sales um, and training, but most of that the U.S. is, is very um, close to the Colombian military. Um, I, I don't see, uh, if you will, sort of Colombia as being a priority target for, for
1: the Chinese. During the Soviet era, Russia used to have quite a bit of influence and clout in the wider Latin American region. Does Russia still hold on to any of that influence today, or is that all dissipated? It isn't much of a player in Latin America. It is
5: more of an opportunist, uh, and it tries to exploit these opportunities in a low-cost way. So, in in Venezuela, given its uh, significant oil and gas industries, Rosneft and then later other subsidiaries or spinoffs invested heavily in, in um, the uh, investment and production and shipping of Venezuelan crude and gas. Um, in China, uh, the Russians uh, also um, uh, have talked about opening up a submarine port and donating uh, some goods. And in the case of Cuba, rather, uh, they've been they've discussed opening up a submarine port and have a listening station, a radar listening station in Cuba. Uh, but those are because they're easy. Uh, same thing with Nicaragua, they've opened up mysteriously, a, a uh, supposedly a drug training center to address narcotics, which is odd because Nicaragua was actually not a transshipment point for narcotics and certainly not one for, it's not the primary one, it's certainly not one for Russia, so that should raise a few eyebrows. Um, and, and in the case of, of Venezuela as well, Russia has opened up a few plants, uh, factories, one is actually producing AK-47s, which I've heard, not coincidentally, were the same AK-47 parts uh, that were used by the FARC. So yeah, it, it re- remains a malign actor in this sense, but its capacity for larger geostrategic sort of reordering is is very min- is minimal. Um, I think it's mostly its role is one of, 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 of you know playing to the worst elements and augmenting them and establishing a toehold, um, but it, it's it, it, it's not going to certainly engage in any sort of open conflict with the United States over any of these issues. Uh, and, and in some cases, it, it is using these purely for utilitarian reasons to launder its money and goods to evade EU and US sanctions over its Ukraine and Crimea policies. So uh, I, I see it as, as as troubling. As I say, I'm a line player, but not a, a, a big player.
1: Looking forward into the next 10 to 15 years, who will be the major ally of Bogota going forward? Will they continue to look towards Washington or do you think they'll face more towards players like Beijing? The US will remain Colombia's uh, major partner, politically, diplomatically,
5: economically, both because of the free trade agreement, because of the institutional relations that have evolved over decades with the military, with business, with the political class. Um, This is a small, almost ineffable, signal of a relationship but you know the number of colombians that study in u.s universities is almost larger i would argue per capita than than, than say with the exception of, of mexico than most countries uh, it is very integrated a personal educational political military economic level and that's going to be difficult to roll back um, the um you know I, but i think the um as two things on the horizon could increase the the space for greater Chinese involvement. The first is the uh, potential debt that may come out of uh, the pandemic. We've already seen across the region uh, very aggressive fiscal stimulus packages, necessary fiscal stimulus packages that have left many of these countries in a very difficult situation fiscally. and. Given the likelihood that developed economies will need to return to capital markets when to boost their own economies and to uh, uh, service their private their public debt rather, uh, there's a real chance that that countries in the developing world, not just Colombia but throughout, will need to find uh, sources of financing and will face uh, higher spreads to be able to service their s- growing debts. And China, for China, hey, this is a good opportunity. Uh, you know, basically, they can find themselves. These countries may be selling low and they'll be buying high, uh, and it's you know this is chump change. Uh, they can scoop up a lot of this debt, uh, especially if the international financial institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, and the developed countries are consumed with servicing and promoting their own debt, and simply are overstretched also in terms of their own um, uh, monetary capacity. Um, that's a huge opportunity for China, which is already, Chinese economy is really the only economy that's really growing at a good clip right now. So I would watch out for that. And that's something, that's a debt trap that is even the best intention could fall into, simply out of need.
1: This is the problem. A Colombian farmer in the far reaches of the jungle is kind of stuck for options. If they want to leave the coca trade, what can they do? Even if you wanted to change crops, and take advantage of the US subsidies, you would still make less than what you do currently making coca. And rather than a plane flying in and picking it up for you, you now have to get those coffee beans all the way to market, through dense jungles, with little to no roads or infrastructure connecting you, busting your back to make less money. So you risk it. You keep growing coca. But now there are other problems. You know you have to pay the militias to keep your farm safe, you have to bribe officials to look the other way, And even after all that, a U.S. task force plane can come over and spray your crop with pesticide and at any moment can wipe out your entire year's crop, the thing your family relies on to live. There are no easy options for the Colombian farmer, or for that matter, the Colombian fighter. Imagine you grew up your entire life following your father's footsteps, fighting in the jungles for land and equality and freedom. You never went to school. You only learned what you were taught in the jungle training camps. You've probably never even seen the capital, Bogota. And now all of a sudden there's a peace deal, and you were told this war is over, and you were to come out of the jungle and rejoin the rest of society. A society that quite often you may have never been integrated in in the first place. But then the first thing you find out as you re enter that society, the one you're trying to rejoin, and the one you have to somehow integrate into, is that they just voted to keep you isolated. They voted no. As a majority, the society cried out, no, we don't want the flak rejoining us. So the government undemocratically pushed it through anyway. And like being forced by your mom to hang out with a neighbor's kid you don't like, the government pushes you into society and tells you to just get a job, to integrate with a society that you know is going to be combative. They tell you to get a job in a market already flooded with low-skilled workers fleeing the crisis in neighboring Venezuela, which makes it even harder. And even when you get to those jobs, people demonize you. They've been told all their life that all you know how to do is fight and extort people. Because that's what the media narrative has been for the last 60 years. There are even people crying out for your group to be put on trial for war crimes. And that is the environment you are supposed to enter into. To find stable employment, a concept that is pretty alien to a lot of your comrades. Many of the finders are realizing how stacked the deck is against them. Seeing the road ahead is just far too steep, so they return to the only life they know, the rebel life. And Bogotá is fine with this, because it's a win-win for them. These fighters going back increases resentment towards FARC, and he ups their popularity, whilst at the same time pulling likely left-leaning voters out of the voting pool. Even the one thing, cocaine, they swear to destroy is not in their interest to do so. Bogotá knows a good chunk of that $88 billion flows back into the Colombian economy. And whilst taking money from the drugs, they also get to double dip and take US money to fight the drug war. It's a win-win for Bogotá. But not so much a win for anyone else. This story started off with us talking about a plant. So I'll finish off this piece, again, talking about a plant. When it comes to these overall societal problems in Colombia... The government can trim the leaves and branches all they want, but the plants will continue to grow with their roots firmly in the ground. And Bogota has no real interest to pull those roots out of the ground at the moment, so the plant will continue to grow. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, as this one's a pretty special one for us here at the show, as by the math, this will be the episode that will cross the millionth stream mark. That's insane. That's insane. It took us only 14 months to go from one stream to one million streams. And we cannot thank all of you guys enough for tuning into the show. You know, just seeing so many of your Spotify raps and just getting so many DMs about it just really moved me. So thank you, thank you, thank you again for this one. If you want to keep up the support of the show and take it even further, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. You can also check out our dedicated subreddit, R, the Redline podcast, where we share articles and news, as well as ask questions and have forums on what we think the next episode should be. And out on top of that, we now have a very own Redline Discord for fans of the show to hang out and chat by themselves, and I also pop in most days. Later on the week, I'll also be playing some games with you guys on Discord, and getting to know each and every one of you better, so I can take the time to thank you all personally while playing a few games and hanging out. The link for the Discord is on our website, www. TheRedlinePodcast.com, and the Hangout Times will be announced via the Redline Twitter. This show is completely made possible by our amazing Patreons whose donations help keep this show running. Each and every dollar donated to the show goes right back into it to help us pay for backing music, hosting costs, lawyers, and website fees that all come with running a show like this one. We just had our two recent Patreon Hangouts this week, and I loved meeting a whole bunch of you there, both in our group sessions and also with one-on-one sessions. I am so lucky to have such a supportive group of people like I do, and I cannot thank each and every one of you enough from the bottom of my heart. Getting to a million streams is as much your achievement as it is mine, as one could not exist without the other. So thank you. I want to give a thanks to our amazing guest this week. Alison Vidurka was absolutely great to work with on this piece, and her future-focused writing is incredibly well-known in the industry. I've wanted to get Allison on the show for quite a while now and I'm very glad we finally did. If you want to check out some of Allison's great work for yourself, you can find her on the Twitter handle A for Ted Pecone is one of the hardest working guys in the field and is incredibly well respected. Ted has been on the cutting edge of a number of the nation's Latin American policies for many years now and it would be hard to think of anyone better qualified to talk about Colombia than Ted himself. So we we're thrilled to have him on the program. You can find Ted on Twitter at the handle Picon underscore Ted. Chris Sabatini originally came on the show at the beginning of the year to talk about Venezuela and still remains to this day as one of my favorite all-time guests. He's incredibly knowledgeable in this field and is my go-to source for up-to-date info when it comes to Latin America and what's happening on the ground there. I cannot recommend highly enough that you go follow him on Twitter if you too want up-to-date information about what is happening on the ground in Latin America. As always, our amazing bumpers were brought to us by the charming Mark Spencer, who does the chapter titles for this show. Mark himself is scoring bigger and better interviews for his own show called Climactic, and there's no better place to go if you want up-to-date info with the climate crisis. Mark and his team are well worth a listen, and I highly recommend you go check those out. And if you want to find that stuff, you can find Mark on Twitter at the handle at Climactic Show. Joe Hawthorne, once again, is the reason the audio in this show sounds as crisp as it does, as he cleans and helps out with the audio for this program. Joe is an absolute gun when it comes to audio, and if you ever need someone to help give your audio that high-end treatment to put you above the rest, Joe is the man to speak to. You can find Joe on Twitter at the handle hawthorne 77 I am absolutely thrilled to say as well that we just recently brought on a brand new team member who's joining us this week. Owen Swift is a highly recommended policy analyst who works with the likes of Aspie, who just joined our team to help bring us more articles and extra redline content for you to check out over the week diving deep into some of the more obscure aspects of each piece, like the Russian naval moves from Astrakhan to Kaspis, or why Iran is looking to Guyana for its South American strategy, as well as providing more links and notes to help you go as deep as I do into these topics. We are thrilled to have Owen as part of the team at such a crazy time. If you want to find Owen on Twitter, you can find him at Owen Swift. The last big thanks goes to you for listening to the show. A million streams. That's incredible. I am the luckiest man alive. And that is really all thanks to each and every one of you who liked and shared and subscribed and told your friends about the show. Just seeing people recommend it to other people in the show really is the thing that makes the difference. Over this year, I have met so many great people through the show from all over the world. And I cannot wait to meet even more of you over the next few months. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. We'll be back in another fortnight's time with another international episode,
4: but until then, thank you and good night. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more